the thing is, you're not so much the chosen one as you are a clammy scrap of bait. No, but what about the stuff that you said? I'm supposed to fight the devil. Mm, not so much. Hey, if it's any consolation, you happen to be the illegitimate half-brother of the guy we do care about. That's not bad, is it? So you lied. About everything. We didn't lie. We just avoided certain truths to manipulate you. Oh, you son of a bitch. Hey, how do you think I feel? I'm the one that's got to put up with that dumb, slack-jawed look on your face. Welcome to today's episode of Talk on Things and Stuff. Today, we are going to do a follow-up of last week's episode where we really dug into a talk given by Apostle Dallin H. Oaks, wherein he kind of deconstructed the whole concept of honesty and lying and provided what is frankly a rationale which would justify dis what everyone else would see as dishonesty, but but doing it with kind of a secret private definition. We had to end that episode in a bit of a rush, and so we didn't get a chance to get to some of the media and commentary and calls that we'd like to have with this type of discussion. So we're gonna continue that in part two today, where I am joined once again by Radio Free Mormon. How are you doing today, RFM? I'm doing great, thank you, Jonathan. Excited to be here. Now, we just saw at the opening of this show a clip that you brought to my attention from a show that I hear is near and dear to your heart. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? Because that was a, a brilliant quote. Yeah, that's supernatural. And you found the quote. I remembered I watched the first few seasons a while ago. Mm -hmm. It's like gone on forever. I think it just ended with like season 17 or something. Like yeah, that. something Huge, like that. Hugely popular show. Anyway, they're Sam and Dean, uh, the Winchester brothers, and they find this uh, half-brother that their dad, you know, uh, procreated with somebody other than their mother. He's younger than they are. I think his name is Adam. Anyway, anyway, the deal is, is that Adam's up there. He's being talked to by angels, the gentleman in the white shirt and the coat, the guy who looks like a general authority. And yeah. could have maybe even played by Gordon Jump at an earlier date. Uh, he's, he's explaining to him because he's given him this whole impression that he is the golden child. The chosen one. The chosen one, because actually it's his half-brother. It's it's um, Sam. Sam is the golden child, right? He's the one that they're yeah. interested in. But he's given him, Adam, the impression that he's the one. But And now he's realizing it. By the way, it looks like this was actually filmed in the celestial room of the Salt Lake Temple. I think they got special permission to no, shoot that didn't. scene there. I well, you know, if Mike Norton can get in there, I oh, think anybody God. can. But seriously, folks. Um, and so all of a sudden he's realizing now, Adam's realizing that, wait, what, what? And you lied to me about everything. And the angel looks at him patronizingly and says, we didn't lie. We just avoided certain truths to manipulate you. What I love about that is that <laughs> number one, it's kind of using the truth against him. But number two, it's just kind of laying it out exactly what is happening. And that is that you can use controlled media, control information to manipulate people. And that's really what this entire discussion has been about, is about how the church plays loose with the truth in order to specifically manipulate the choices that people make in their interactions with the church, if you get what I mean. 
Oh, I get exactly what you mean. And the thing that's amazing about it is that last week, it was just a week ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was last year, last Friday. Time, time flies. But uh, that we looked at that talk from 1993 by Elder Oaks. Mm. And in one sense, if you just look at what he's saying on the face of it, it looks like he's saying things that are absolutely correct and moral. If you tell the truth, you have to tell the truth. And yeah. you can, if you don't want to tell the truth, you can be silent. And silent is not lying. Silence is not lying. Nobody would disagree with that. Silence is not lying. But when you take it and juxtapose it with what he was actually doing in the media, the following month of October of 1993, we find out that what he really means, the, the secret message, the deeper message in his 1993 talk is that you can give certain truths to people while withholding other truths in order to give them the wrong impression, give them a false impression, just so long as you don't cross over that line of out and out line. Right, and he did it by create, kind of weaving a spell wherein you can take certain statements or approaches to the truth that the wider world would say is frankly lying, but he's created some secret definition or secret rules to call it anything but lying. And we, we kind of condensed those down into these 10 rules. You could probably dig in and find a few more, uh, but I have them up on the screen now as Dallin H. Oaks rules on lying. Um, and I, I think, you know, this has made a little bit of an impact in, in the online before where they, they see these rules and they're like, what, that doesn't sound right. You know, I've had a few people comment, show me the talk where these rules come from because you're making this up. And so I'm like, no, just go and read this, this, you know, sermon slash talk given before attorneys and you can extract these rules from what he says. Now, there was something that came up in our discussions before that episode that we wanted to get into but didn't have time to and that is a little bit of a discussion of um the you know Dallin H. Oaks is an attorney. He's talking to an attorney audience. We all understand that there is this thing such as attorney-client privilege where you are professionally bound and ethically obligated to withhold certain things. And then within our justice system, there are also a different set of ethical obligations, for example, for the prosecutor who represents the state. And so the attention to the relationship of who your client is may change the rules of what information that you have a positive duty to disclose. But I wanted to get you to maybe to talk about that a little bit because there were some interesting facets that are worth understanding as you approach this issue. Okay, well, I'm happy to talk about it because this is a, an issue that is near and dear to my heart. It's what I do for a living and have for the past 31 years is practice as an attorney. Now, I want to say something outset, at the outset in order to lead into that, all right? To the extent that Elder Oaks is advocating what it is that he appears to be advocating, that it's okay to uh, say certain things and withhold certain things in order to give a false impression of what it is you're saying, mm -hmm. that is absolutely not okay. And it occurred to me, I think it was like this morning driving into work that, you know, a lot of people, they're outside the legal profession. I'm obviously inside of it. But a lot of people think lawyers, that's what they do for a living is they <laughs> use words to deceive. OK, and that is something that Elder Oak seems to be advocating, if not in his talk, certainly in his practice. OK, which we went over with the grizzly bear stage managing a grizzly bear. Yeah. I want to make it really clear that is not OK for lawyers to be doing. 
That is wrong. That is unethical. And it could possibly be something that they'd be subject to being disciplined for with the Bar Association. So I want to make that really clear up front because I feel like I have a duty to defend the profession of being a lawyer against lawyers like Dallin H. Oaks. The, the old expression I've said before is that 95% of lawyers give the rest of us a bad name, right? Yes. Well, I'm afraid that Dallin Oaks appears to be in that 95%. And he knows or should know that what he is saying and what he's advocating to the extent that we're understanding it correctly is wrong. You don't get to do that as a lawyer. So let me give you a couple examples, okay? Before we get okay. into this uh, uh, client privilege stuff. Sure. I was at a hearing. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm not representing anybody involved in this case, but there was a, a, a cop shooting in the county where I live a few years back. It was a really big deal and it was a bad thing. And the guy who did it was going to trial. So what happened is that he's been in custody for a number of years, probably, probably for a couple of years by the time it's getting ready for to go to trial. It has been set for trial. It's been continued a number of times. And now it's really, really set for trial. And his attorney, who's some guy from out of town, I don't recognize him. His attorney comes in front of the judge. It's a courtroom. I happen to be sitting there in the audience and waiting for my case to be called. I'm watching. He comes before the judge and he's making a motion for another continuance. And what he tells the judge is that he went, the attorney went to visit the client at the jail. And the attorney, he says, I didn't go alone. I brought along with me an expert. And we went to see him and the defendant, the client, appears to be decompensating mentally, such that I have a question as to whether he is uh, able to uh, be tried, to be competent at this point to stand trial. And my expert agrees that he has decompensated to the point where what we want to do is we want to send him to the mental institution, have him evaluated again to see if he's competent to stand trial, send him back, find out from the from the people down at the um, those experts down there. Um, and so he puts all this in front of the, the judge. And of course, the prosecutor is livid. I mean, how many times do we have to set this thing for trial? They've got a ton of witnesses they have scheduled, right? And they're going to have to scrap their subpoena, schedule them in again if this is granted. So the judge is looking at this, this attorney, and he asks him the obvious question. Do you know what that question is, Jonathan? Uh, who's your expert? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. This expert that you're talking about, what is he an expert in? Uh. And the lawyer now says, uh, gang violence. And the judge says, so you're, he's not a mental health expert of any kind. No, he's not. So what expertise does he have to tell me through you that this guy's decompensating mentally? Oh, well, I guess he doesn't have any. So, I mean, the temperature went down in that courtroom at like 15 <laughs> degrees. This could only get better if the gang violence expert was an expert because he was, you know, in the gang and he was doing the <laughs> violence. <laughs> and maybe he was a recovering uh, gang member. I don't know. But really, but really, that's what happened. And so this is the kind of thing that you don't want to do in front of a judge. You don't want to go up there and tell them the truth. Yeah, he's an expert, but I'm not going to tell you what kind of an expert because I want to imply and I want you to think that he's a, an expert with mental health because mm -hmm. he thinks he's decompensating. And the judge asked one question. He had to answer honestly. Yeah, he had to. Yeah, technically, and, the truth. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it just blew everything apart. 
So yeah, the difference is though, did he have a positive duty to reveal the nature of his expert's background? Once the judge asked, he did. And by the way, before the judge asked, he did. Yeah. You don't get to go up there and say something is technically the truth in order to try and give a false impression to the court and just try and pull one over on the court and hope the court doesn't figure it out. Uh-uh, that doesn't fly. One other thing, this is another example. Okay, this was not an attorney and this was more recently. This is just a couple of weeks ago. I happened to be representing a client uh, in a no contact order motion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm present once again in the courtroom, this time by Zoom. Uh, present in the courtroom and there's somebody else who's going on before me and I'm listening to their hearing. And this is a gal who's not represented by the way. So in this, by the way, this is going to go under the heading of you don't have to be an, uh, you don't have to be an unethical attorney to act like one. <laughs> okay. These are, these are general principles that you don't have to be an attorney to understand and then try and employ. They are general principles that you should absolutely never do as an attorney or even as a human being. I mean, I don't want to get all moralistic, but as an attorney, I will tell you that's unethical. That doesn't fly because nobody, nobody deplores lawyer lying more than Delaney jokes. <laughs> that's right. Lawyer lying. He said that, didn't he? He does. Oh my gosh. He also said this, by the way, uh, this is from that talk and we didn't quite get to this quote. We got to a lot of them. He, he quotes from that uh, section in the Doctrine and Covenants and gives his, here's the moral he draws from it. Here we, here we see that although a man is not justified in lying to detect a liar, he is justified. Indeed, Joseph Smith was commanded. <laughs> That's not very good. But he says, a man is justified. Indeed, Joseph Smith was commanded to withhold things from the world in order, he emphasizes, in order to preserve himself and safeguard the work in which he is involved. Mm. Did you it's have that up there on your list? I, it's not a lie if it's for a cause. Right. That was that was somewhere else. And you could add yeah. that to your list. It's okay to lie in order to preserve yourself. And this is the key, which we'll get to here in a few minutes. It's okay to lie in order to safeguard the work yeah. in which you are involved, i.e. Yeah. the work of the kingdom, i.e. the church of Jesus yeah, Christ of Latter-day Saints. Sorry. Yeah, that's I mean, that falls under, you know, if it's not a lie, if it would the truth would incriminate you. And it's not a lie if it's for a cause. And what yes. cause could be greater than building up the kingdom of God? Yes. Well, God may be, God may not be my co-pilot, but um, Dallin H. Oaks is definitely God's lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> All so right. The other story, the other story, the other story. Okay, the no contact order hearing, there's this gal who's not represented, okay? And mm. what she, it's, it's a crazy situation. It's one thing I love about the law. It's full of uh, fun and crazy situations. But this lady who is is have, excuse me, is having an affair with a married man. Oof. The married man's wife finds out about it. She's not happy. And so, what this uh, woman who's bringing the um, the the petition for a no contact order is trying to get a no contact order against the wife of the guy she's having the affair with. Okay. Seriously. Yeah, I had to wrap my head around that too. And I'm listening. Is this really what's going on? Because it sounds like it. And it was. So um, the the wife, now, according to the, the woman who's having the affair, okay, um, she gets very mad. And this woman who's having the affair is over at a friend's house and having a shower. 
at her friend's house. And she alleges that this woman outraged over the affair comes over to her friend's house, breaks in through the front door, comes into the bathroom and tears down the curtain and berates her loudly until she's finally made to leave. Okay. So that's what she puts in front of the judge in her petition for her no contact order. And I'm watching all this unfold. Now, the, the other lady, the wife, has an attorney. And because she has an attorney, what happens is the attorney reveals the fact that this, when this, uh, the lady having the affair is at her friend's house, the friend she's talking about is the husband. Oh. <laughs> yeah. She didn't bother to mention that. <laughs> no, no. So she's over at a friend's house who happens to be the husband of this woman, which is also this woman's house, the wife's house, right? Yeah. Because it's the husband's house, it's the wife's house. And she comes into her own house. She finds out there's this woman that her husband's having an affair with, taking a shower in the bathroom. And she comes in there and tears down the curtain and screams her head off. Yeah. So what she said was not a lie. No. No, this husband was definitely a friend of hers. A very good friend. Perhaps <laughs> yeah. a friend with benefits. But uh, so it's not a lie. But when the judge hears that, he has the same reaction as you or I would. It's not, oh, wow, that was a good one. You, you really almost pulled one over on me. Good job. You're acting like a really good lawyer here. No, he says, wow, this makes a big difference. You know, it's like you were trying to fool me by saying it was a friend. And if it had just been a friend, I might have ruled to give you a no contact order. But now that I know that actually your friend is the husband and it's his mm -hmm. house, which means it's the wife's house, Forget it. You're not getting a no contact order. Yeah. And if she had been a lawyer, she would have been possibly disciplined if that had been reported to yeah. the bar association. It's up to the bar association. But that is something that is very strictly enforced is that a lawyer has a duty. It's called duty of candor to the tribunal, which means you got to tell the truth to the judge. You don't get to try and use words to pull one over on the judge. And that's okay. It's not a competition between lawyers as to which one can use words to uh, misrepresent things the best. And the best misrepresenter wins. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, there's a there's a historical example of this from our lifetime that it might be fun to introduce to the narrative just by way of another material example. And that is our good friend, uh, what's, what do they call him, Slick Willie or something like that? Uh, this is the, you know, he, this is President- I think, that, I think that's what Monica Lewinsky called him. <laughs> oh my God. So President Clinton was dragged before the grand jury or had to give a deposition because it appeared in the initial investigations into the scandalous affair between him and intern Monica Lewinsky, he represented to the grand jury that he did not have sexual relations with that woman. And then later when objective undeniable evidence came out that there was inappropriate sexual contact between the two, he, now had to defend himself not against the sexual impropriety but against the uh charge of perjury saying you know how is it that what he told the grand jury was not a lie and so he had you know he started out with a prepared remark and it and it reveals the same type of manipulation through secret private definitions that are not disclosed that are intended to mislead um and this let's take a listen to what he had to say when I was alone with Ms. Lewinsky, 
on certain occasions in early 1996 and once in early 1997. I engaged in conduct that was wrong. These encounters did not consist of sexual intercourse. They did not constitute sexual relations as I understood that term to be defined at my January 17, 1998 deposition. But they did involve... Okay, so... Inappropriate I, but, and contact. Okay, so here he's talking now about definitions because definitions are the 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 framework the substrate in which his answers were given but because he was holding a proprietary unique definition in his mind as he was answering he's now going to explain to you know the american public how what he did was not a lie and when he said you know sexual relations were not what i understood that term to be what he's saying is that you know we we consulted we con we constructed a definition of sexual relations that means it had to have the possibility of procreation and everybody who's you know is familiar with the cigars and the dress and all the other things that have to do with uh this particular story can say well okay so since the exact sexual act that they admit to didn't involve the possibility of procreation then he was able to 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 maintain that he you know was telling the truth is that your understanding of what happened Right. That's what that's what happens. By the way, I did notice when I was watching it again this time that apparently the question was about sexual relations, quote unquote, sexual relations. Yeah. Which is a broader question than sexual intercourse. Yeah. But notice how he introduces it. He mentioned sexual intercourse first, mm. where everybody basically understands what that is. And then he segues to sexual relations, which is what it is that the question was. And now he's going to say, I have this private understanding of sexual relations that it does not mean, uh, I mean, it only means sexual right. intercourse, right? That's why he mentioned yeah. sexual intercourse first to lay yeah. that groundwork. So sexual relations will fit within that. We didn't actually have penile vaginal contact. Okay. And therefore it wasn't sexual intercourse and it wasn't sexual relations. Now the question that comes up here, isn't whether he's trying to squirm his way by shifting definitions to get off the hook, right? Yeah. The question that comes up to my mind is, is this something that was in his mind when he testified before the grand jury? Or is it something that all of a sudden it comes up with the blue dress and the stain, right? And now he's yeah. caught, DNA, hello. And now he's got to come up with this excuse and he's doing this uh, on the fly. My yeah. feeling is, uh, my feeling is, is that when he's asked that question originally, he's already got this in his mind. I don't know that. I can't read his mind. But generally, that's the way it happens. Because when people are, are intelligent, sophisticated, and to a certain degree, unscrupulous and trying to get away with this particular practice, that's what they do. They do it at the outset. And already, they know that if they get caught, and if somehow evidence comes out that proves it, that they've already got this as a fallback position, as to what it is that they can go to in that case. It's kind of like uh, Elder Oak says, uh, there were four statements that he made to the newspaper reporter about his uh, meeting with, um, about his knowledge about Elder Packer right. contacting the state president. And out of all four of those, which all give the impression that Elder Packer had nothing to do with it, he retracted one because it was an unequivocal lie. And in his words, he said, I could not defend that statement that I knew nothing about, I had no knowledge about. Elder Packer contacting the state president. The other statements, which gave the impression that Elder Packer did not contact the state president, but did not come out and say that, 
in black and white. He said, I felt he felt he could defend those. And therefore, those were published in the newspaper. Yeah. Well, and it also reminds me, you know, Clinton's private definition, secret definition of sexual relations being different than in what he understands the wider world and the grand jury would understand is very similar to the footnote 22 example that we gave in the first episode, where when you read the gospel topic essay on plural marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo, they explain that all of Joseph Smith's denials, you know, that famous quote where he says, what a thing it is to be accused of having seven wives when I look around and I can find but one. And they say, well, that wasn't a lie because there was the secret definition of what polygamy was, which was plural marriage without church sanction. And what they were doing was plural marriage with church sanction. And so he was technically telling the truth by that secret private definition. Yeah, absolutely. And it's Gordon B. Hinckley talking about, I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize yeah. that when asked the question, I think it was Time Magazine, about um, uh, God once having been a man. And yeah. that was so shocking because the implication was so obvious. The message was so obvious that uh, the church doesn't teach that, that it got a whole bunch of members going, what the heck? I thought, I mean, haven't I heard this in church a bunch of times? Haven't I studied this? Haven't I read it? The teachings of the prophets? And that there was such a, a backlash about that and such a hubbub bub that at the next general conference, Gordon B. Hinckley has to come out and say, you know, some people are worried that I don't know the doctrine of the church. Well, rest assured. I know what the doctrine of the church is, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And everybody goes, ah, okay. He was using language to give a false impression so that we would not be embarrassed by exposing our deeper doctrines to the public. But he knows that he's on board. Everything's okay. Good ship Zion is still sailing ahead toward the promised land. Yeah. Uh, and that falls into the thing where there's, you know, there's a different set of truths for the church leaders when they're facing the media and a whole set of prevarications to defend the church there. And by the same token, there's also a different set of truths that the church leaders have when they're facing the members themselves. And it's not a unique modern invention or anything like that. It's something that goes all the way back to Joseph Smith himself. Um, if you look on the, uh, the website, Thoughts on Things and Stuff, there's a few articles that... Um, have been brought up over the years that specifically point out some of these instances. Let me bring up one that came to mind. Um, this is one, you know, after John C. Bennett has been caught up in his spiritual wifery, well, then all of these rumors are going around that Joseph Smith himself has some sort of doctrine which justifies plural marriage. And in order to defend himself, he's now got control of the newspaper in the area. He's the editor of the Times and Seasons. And he responded to those accusations in this statement, inasmuch as the public has been unjustly abused through the fallacy of Dr. Bennett's letters, we make an extract on the subject of marriage showing the rule of the church on this important matter. The extract is from the book of the Doctrine and Covenants and is the only rule allowed by the church. Quote, all legal contracts of marriage made before a person is baptized in this church should be held sacred and fulfilled. Inasmuch as the Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare we believe one man should have one wife and one woman, and again one husband, except in the case of death when either is at liberty to marry again. And this was in September of 1842. Uh, it was published to the members. This paper was intended to go to the members, and he's quoting scripture at the time, section 101 in their published Doctrine and Covenants had this statement, which was strict monogamy. And this is not silence for a season. This is outright misrepresentation, outright factual lying. 
Now, the revelation on polygamy was not yet recorded or public. However, Joseph had already begun the practice of plural marriage. Uh, remember that his first sealing was in uh, in Nauvoo was to Louisa Beeman in 1841. So, um, you know, if you dig into church history, you're going to find these types of examples going all the way back to Joseph Smith. And this is why so many people feel betrayed and uh, just devastated when they start to actually examine how the church has played fast and loose with the truth from its beginning. Yeah, and as I began to study more and more about church history and everything, I started tripping to these kind of things. But the reaction that I had as a very much a TBM was, I'm a little uncomfortable with it, but then I segue into this thing of, now I'm in on the secret, okay? Yeah. I understand it. It was done for a good cause, i.e. God and Mormonism, and therefore it was okay. The problem was, I think the problem is this, is that when you get to the point when you realize as a member of the church that the leaders of the church have a certain level of transparency that they use to the outside world, right? Which is mm -hmm. very opaque and fuzzy and sometimes misrepresenting or uh, mischaracterizing. And But then they talk differently to the members of the church, like with Gordon B. Hinckley in that instance I gave. And they're much more, they're more open, you know, they're honest with the members of the church, right? So there's one degree of transparency for the outside world a greater degree of transparency for the members. It should not surprise members, although it did me. But if you think about it, it should not surprise members to realize that there's another level of transparency to the leaders themselves. Mm -hmm. In other words, leaders have a much more transparent uh, level with the leaders than they do with the members. And then a still lesser degree of transparency to the outside world. Yeah. It's a spectrum, and, right? No, you're absolutely right. And that, I think, was brought to a point with the conflict that happened in Joseph Smith's time with William Law, who was a counselor in his very first presidency, where Joseph Smith had already begun practicing the secret doctrine of plural marriage and had even brought in some of the other Wilson apostles, but had kept William Law in the dark. And we learned later that it's, you know, anytime he would introduce anything close to the subject, Law was just completely vehemently opposed to it. And so, you know, he's not a safe person to introduce that to. But then when he finally discovers the truth of it, it blows up in his face. And I think in looking at the timeline, part of the reason that both for William Law and for Foster, the reason it blows up in his face is because two years before 1844, when all of that happened with the John C. Bennett affair, Joseph Smith was still lying to the public saying, we don't do anything like it, you know, like in that quote. And then he circulates this thing called uh, uh, certificates and affidavits, basically refuting the accusations of John C. Bennett. And who does he get to give their name and their reputation in defense of the prophet that he's not doing anything like those lies of John C. Bennett is William Law and his brother. And, and Robert Foster. And so those people, a couple of years later, when they realized that their names and their reputations were used in a lie to defend Joseph, who was doing the things that he was being accused of, uh, then I think that adds the insult to injury in them discovering that they're now involved in this organization that is completely deceptive from the start. Yeah. Are you ready to talk about clients and privilege? Let's do that. that yeah. Let's okay. Do that. So here's the deal. When you're an attorney, and by the way, we're not going to talk about prosecutors right now because prosecutors are a very small, tiny subset of all the lawyers okay. in okay. the world. They're an important part of the, the show, of course. But uh, as far as civil law, as far as criminal defense, all those kind of lawyers, here's the deal. 
you have a duty to protect the interests of your client. Now that's very easily said and it manifests itself in a number of ways. First off, if they tell you something in confidence, you have to keep it in confidence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And uh, you have to conduct yourself in such a way as to protect their interests. Now that makes sense, right? Because you're their lawyer, you protect their interests. Yeah. So let me ask this question first. The question that, okay. When you, when you arrive at an ethical dilemma, because sometimes your representation of a client and your duty to protect their interests comes into conflict with another duty that you might have as a lawyer. And let's use this idea of duty of candor to the tribunal. Okay. Your duty to protect, your duty to your client cannot trump your duty to the court. So I can't ask my attorney to lie for me if it's in my best interest? You can ask. You can ask, but your attorney will say, not just no, but hell no. This you reminds know? me of that scene in Breaking Bad where um, Saul is trying to tell him, he's like, you need a criminal lawyer. And he's like, no, I already got a criminal defense lawyer. He's like, no, 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 no. You need a criminal lawyer. <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, yeah, and there's an old saying that uh, one of the main rules of being a criminal defense attorney is that at the end of the case, make sure that you're not the one going to prison. Yes. Okay. And that's uh, supposed to be a humorous way of saying, yeah, you don't commit crimes. You don't say anything that's a lie to the tribunal. And so there can come times where these things come into conflict. Mm, okay. Now, usually they don't, but there always will be from time to time in an attorney's life. Let me give you an example. One example is this. I had this client, this is like 25, 20 years ago. And I'm not going to mention his name, obviously. I'm sure he doesn't remember me or probably doesn't watch your show. Maybe he does. But this is this was a, a divorce case. Back then I was doing some divorce law, which I did for about three years. And this guy was a very angry man. And he would come into my office and he would rant and rail about the judge the specific judge who did the family law calendar. And he was furious because he would get uh, some rulings from him that he didn't like because they were against him. And he would tell me in the loudest and angriest tones possible that at the next hearing or some hearing, he is going to run up, jump over the bench and physically pummel the judge. And I said, He's no, you're telling not. you this as his attorney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I'm in a situation here now, uh, by the way, this courtroom that we're meeting in, it's like in a hearing room, uh, every, mm -hmm. it's like within the criminal system or excuse me, the justice system, uh, generally the family law stuff is kind of toward the bottom of the totem pole. At least it's, it's, yeah. it's viewed by the judges. And so they get the hearing room, right? Cause all the other regular courtrooms are, are full. There's no security in this hearing room. There's no bailiff with a, a gun. There's no guard. There's no checkpoints. There's no nothing. You just go in there. And so uh, I just go, geez, okay, what do I do? First off, he's probably not going to do that, right? He's probably just blowing off steam, even though my attempts to get him to calm down were unsuccessful. And so I said, what do I do? Uh, do I just let him go on and not do anything? And then if he gets up, runs up there and beats the heck out of the judge, well, I can say, well, didn't see that coming. Well, maybe I could see it coming, right? Because he told me he was going to. And on the other hand, I think, well, I, do I tell the judge? 
do I tell the judge about this? And uh, because there's another element, which is if your client tells you that you are going to commit a crime, the client's going to commit a crime, uh, then you, you're not bound by the attorney-client privilege in instances like that. You don't have to tell, but you're not bound by it anymore. And in this and that's, case, that's for future crime. But if he tells you, yeah, I did this other crime, you don't have to disclose that. Right. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Past crime, uh, they are different. We're talking about he is going to. Okay. And this does depend on what the definition of is is, but is <laughs> going to, right? Um, so uh, what I decided to do was I went and I, I met with the judge and I talked with him and I said, look, uh, uh, my client, you know, he's angry about some rulings you've made. And I don't think he's going to do this, but I just want to let you know that he ha this is what he said to me. And so when we're in court, I just want you to have a special eye open heads up. Mm -hmm. And the judge appreciated it. You know, said, oh, well, thanks for telling me that. I appreciate that. And we went forward and we had a few more hearings on different days. Nothing ever happened. But I'm sure that the judge had his eye open, right? So uh, that's one of those cases where you, you run into a conflict. Uh, what's your duty to the judge, to the client? And I'm not revealing anything secret about the case, right? right? But it's about his intent to assault a judicial officer. So yeah. there are times when these conflicts come up. But the rule is, the rule is this. In ethics for lawyers, nine out of 10 times when you have an ethical dilemma, it can be resolved by asking yourself one simple question. Who is my client? Hmm. And once you ask that question, and it works, I mean, I learned this a long time ago at a CLE, uh, ask yourself, who is your client? And you, you run into a situation, you go, who's my client? Ah, okay, well, that answers my question. Yeah. It doesn't always, but nine out of 10 times, it will answer your question because he's the one that you, or she is the one that you owe the duty to as the attorney. Now, the question for us, as we look at Elder Oaks, is he's a lawyer, in his mind, who is his client? Uh, I, I think they've answered that question for us as recently as the October 2014 General Conference, uh, of which I will play a clip right now. Yeah. Which way do you face? President Boyd K. Packer surprised me with this puzzling question while we were traveling together on my very first assignment as a new 70. Without an explanation to put the question in context, I was baffled. A 70, he continued, does not represent the people to the prophet, but the prophet to the people. Never forget which way you face. It was a powerful lesson. All right. And thanks for repeating it because it's a very powerful lesson indeed. I'm sorry, you probably want to talk about it. I've been talking a whole lot. No, I apologize. No, no, the, the, that's why you're here, so you can give this legal perspective, because I think it informs how they see themselves. And here we have Lynn G. Robinson, a relatively new general authority, saying that he was brought up in the church, taught how to conceptualize his position in the church, who he represented from these elder statesmen, Packer. And that is that it's not that we listen to the members and bring that information to the prophet, it's that we get our orders from the prophet and we impose them on the members. We represent the prophet, i.e. the church, i.e. God, and that those edicts go one way. 
and the interests that we represent go one way. We are never going to defend the interests of the members and push back against the leaders because that's not the way you face. That's right. my diatribe on that. Right. And this question, which way do you face, is actually the exact same question of who is my client. It's just asked in a different way. Yeah. Which way do I face? Well, if I were to say, you know, who's my client? Well, I face, uh, you know, away from my client because he's behind me. I protect him. I represent him. Right. So it's asking the same question. Which way do you face? Well, Elder Packer answered it very clearly and he repeated the answer there, which is you do not face the prophet as a representative of the members. You face away from the prophet and toward the member. That's how I understand it, uh, the, what he's describing. Yeah. So in other words, what you have is visually you have a phalanx of general authorities who all represent the prophet. And actually the prophet is part of the phalanx. They're representing the yeah. church as an institution. Okay. They represent the church as an institution against the members. The members are not the people that the general authorities represent. The church is the institution that the general authorities represent. And whenever there's a conflict, remember, sometimes there'll be conflicts. Lots of times you're not, there's no conflict, but there will come up conflicts from time to time where the general authority has to choose between who they're going to represent, the church or the people, the members. And whenever that conflict occurs, they know to ask the question, who's my client, i.e., which way do I face? And they're going to represent the church. And that usually comes up in terms of, uh, are we going to be, are we going to tell the truth that we learned or know about doctrine, church history, uh, scriptures, what's in the, the vault, all these kind of things, all these uh, negative truths and information that they come into possession of, they are in charge of sitting on and not communicating because they represent the church, that information will hurt the image of the church, and therefore they feel justified in sitting on it because they have to remember which way they face. Now, the other thing is that generally people don't see it that way. People don't understand that that's what's going on because I don't know for how many years I was in the church, I actually believe this whole other story, which is that these gentlemen are apostles of Jesus Christ and that the apostles, just like Jesus Christ, are servants. They are below everybody. They're the servants of everybody. They're there for everybody. And they're there to help everybody. And that the members are the ones whose interests they protect. But actually, the reality is different. I think it's probably fair to say that they'll try and protect the interests of the members up to a certain point. But yeah. that point is when it comes into conflict with representing the church. And then they are all in for the church. They are company men. Yeah. And I think that you know, a lot of people will say, well, look at the church. It's been honest about this other thing. It's been honest about this. They told us this. They're doing good works here. It's like any, you know, you can't just look at the fact that good works are being done or that honest things are being done and say, oh, well, that means that they now are looking out for the interests of the members. It's only when there's a conflict and when they have to choose between something that's really going to be hurtful to the church or something that is going to give information to the members so they can actually make informed consent type decisions, then the then they're going to go for the interests of the church time and time again. Recently, 
in your discussions with Bill Rill, you pointed out that yes, while Joseph F. Smith did take out the first vision account from 832 that was kind of conflicting with the other ones, they eventually put it back in, but we have evidence that other things were taken out at that same time that have not been put back in. And so that type of paternalistic decision-making to protect the interests of the church is still going on. It's just now in the realm of that classic quote where we have known knowns and known unknowns, but there are unknown unknowns that we don't even know to be upset about. And so they've hidden it. So there are unknown things that we don't even know that we don't know. And they've kept that from us, you know, in the same mode of secrecy. Right. I know you meant to say Joseph Fielding Smith. Yes, that's what I meant. That's okay. Uh, but uh, um, yes, exactly. And the problem is, is that we now are in a position where if we study, we know that they have hidden stuff. And so when they come out and say, we're not hiding stuff, what they really mean is we're not hiding stuff anymore. And the question is, on what basis should we believe you? Yeah. So the, here's my question for you, okay? You've talked about the, people saying, oh, the church has been honest about this or they've been honest about that. I wanna ask you this question. When has the church ever been honest about something that was negative about the church when it did not serve the church's interests. And when their hand wasn't forced by there being some other unimpeachable source disclosing it. That's what I mean by in the church's interest. Because once your hand's caught in the cookie jar, you have to admit it. Um, you keep thinking about that. Get back to me. Because <laughs> I don't think there's an answer. I don't think there's a single example where the church has been honest about something hard, something negative, just because they're telling the truth. Yeah, no. I mean, even the disclosure from Elder Dieter Uchtdorf that, you know, to be honest, some leaders and members, we must always throw the members under the bus with the leaders. Some leaders and members have been, you know, frankly, they haven't acted in accordance with our values at times in the past. Well, that admission is coming after a tidal wave of people leaving the church and saying there's all these problems that the church is completely whitewashing. So in a sense, that is a forced hand. We've got to acknowledge these things if we want to have any degree of moral legitimacy going forward. Yeah, sometimes you actually have to acknowledge what everybody else has realized already. Yeah. Well, so understanding now this, this key <clears throat> point at the center of all of these actions, which is who do they represent? Who is the church's client? You know, how do the members want these brethren? How, what's the ethical way that the brethren should consider things? If in my mind, it is that their obligation really is to us as the members. We are the one devoting our lives, devoting our financial and whatever resources to the church. And that should be done in this uh, realm of complete, you know, of transparency to the extent that we can, you know, not find ourselves discovering deceptions that then completely change that, you know, our willingness to be involved. Right. And, and it's because of that, because a growing number of members of the church have discovered the duplicity of the leaders of the church and felt betrayed and left the church. That is why when a sufficient number of members came to that point that they started working on releasing the essays. Mm. That's why, because their hand was forced. They had to do something about it. Otherwise, you know, they're just going to keep seeing the attrition. So they have to do something. That's, the, that's why 
I say that when they have been honest about negative things, it's only because they've been forced to, which is because now it's in the interest of the church to be honest about it because we're losing so many members over the issue. Yeah, and it's not only we need to now admit these things, but it's also we now need to control the narrative about how these facts are contextualized and considered because you've got yes. critics on the internet, you've got the tanners, you've got people who are flat out saying and calling a spade and spade and saying, look, these people lied to you. It's impossible to distinguish between Joseph Smith's actions and modern day religious sexual predators actions because they're doing the same thing, claiming God commanded them and imposing that on their um, followers. And so now we've got to take control of this, do a limited, it's called a limited hangout. And that is where you acknowledge some of the information that's been disclosed. You contextualize it, you make it seem okay, but you only admit those things for which you can no longer keep secret and, and you just hope that nobody else you know finds anything else that um, you then have to acknowledge in the future. And, um, and that's the mode they've been in. Right, well, this is the whole thing that we all know as kids for crying out loud. Uh, that's what the church is doing with the essays, which is when you're a kid and you do something that's wrong and your mom or your dad comes to you and you're in trouble, right? And you've you've sort of done this course of conduct. There's all these different little things that you've done wrong or parts of it, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the parent knows that you've done something wrong or strongly suspects it, right? And they start grilling you. And then this little dance starts taking place uh, as far as the words go. And what the kid does is he's trying to figure out how much the mom or the dad really knows that he did. <laughs> Right. I'll just speak for myself. Yes. I'm trying to figure out how much do they know, how much do yep. they really know and how much do they just suspect? How much can I get away with denying versus how much do I have to admit to? And I'm only going to admit to what they actually have me red handed doing You're everything right. else. No, never did that. Never did that. Nope, nope, nope. That, that kid's lying. Nope. Never happened. He's a liar. He's always been a liar. But that stuff you saw. OK, you saw me do that. Really? OK. <laughs> OK. All right. I'll admit to that. I did that. That's what the essays are. That's all that the essays are. They're the stuff there's they a, have to admit. There's a term for this called trickle truth. You you give a little bit of the truth when you have to. You trickle it out, and then you wait. And then if more comes, if more evidence comes out, you trickle out a little bit more truth. But it's always just only the amount of truth that you have to admit to. Right. And the problem is that on the other side, okay, when you're on the other side of the trickle truth, and I've been in that situation where I, you know, as a grown up with trickle truth from you know my first wife about this, that, and the other thing, and I'm just going. Okay, trickle here. Okay, trickle there. Okay, trickle here. And all of a sudden I start thinking, okay, if there's all these trickles, where's the reservoir? Yeah. You know, where's the lake? Where's the whole body of truth? And how can I trust you when you're giving me trickle truth? And by the second or third time, you should be able to figure it out that this is yeah. a trickle truth kind of situation, right? First time, maybe not. Because you can't tell right, if it's right. a trickle or it's a whole thing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, then you start saying, I can't trust you. I can't trust you because you will only admit as much as you have to. And then you're in the situation of, let's say they admit the whole thing. How do you know if they've been doing the trickle thing three, four, five times? Yeah. You don't even know, know if it's the whole know. thing. You will never know. And so actually what you have to do is have, you have to leave the situation. And then you just have to resign yourself to being content with the fact that you're never going to know. And you okay, can never I'm, trust that person. You can right. never trust that entity again. Right, you can't trust them, and I'm never going to know, and I'm just going to have to live with it. So, okay, I'm moving on. Yeah. Well, this is a brilliant segue into the next real-world example we have of this in action, and that is from the 2012 documentary by the BBC 
examining the church because Mitt Romney is uh, running for president and everyone's got Mormonism on the mind. So we've got, uh, was it John Sweeney, BBC reporter, meeting with a bunch of ex-Mormons and they talk to him about this, you know, the church keeps tabs on critics of the church with this thing called the Strengthening the Church Committee and he wants to know more about it. So he goes to church headquarters. Right, Let's Strengthening the Church Members Committee, right? Yes, that's Sorry. That's okay. To find out more about the mysterious Strengthening Church Members Committee. Off to the church to meet its chief spokesman and the mastermind behind the I Am A Mormon campaign, Michael Purdy. What's the Strengthening Church Members Committee and does it still exist? Uh, I don't know and I'm not, I guess that's a question not for me. I, I, I couldn't tell you that, I don't know. You're the head of media relations for the church. Right. And I've spoken to people, um, ex-members of the church, who say um, the Strengthening Church Members Committee does exist. Does it still exist? I, I, I've heard that, yeah, there is a Strengthening Church Members Committee, but I couldn't tell you the details of how that works, but we'd be happy to provide someone that can. Sorry for my confusion. When I originally asked you, you, you weren't sure. Now you, you do know that it exists, um, and you will give me somebody who knows something about it. Absolutely. Can we so stop there? The yeah, that is so good. Can we stop there? Because this is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant the way that this reporter from the BBC approaches this because he asks the question the first time. He gets the answer twice, twice. Purdy says, I don't know. He says, I don't know at the beginning. He says, that's a question for somebody other than me. Don't know a lot of details. I don't know. So he says that twice. And then he just says, well, I've heard from other people that there is a strengthening church members yeah. committee, right? Is there one? Yeah. And Purdy's cracks like a nut. And he goes, yes. uh, uh, well, yeah, yeah, there is. And so then the reporter now, but but I don't know about it. You, that's a question for somebody other than me. Somebody you know? else, yeah. Somebody else. And uh, part of the benefits of being a talk in a big wheel. But now, he's, but now the reporter says, he, reca he recapitulates what happened. Yeah. First, he says, uh, you weren't sure, and now you do know. And actually, that's not correct. It's worse than that. Because what Purdy said first was, I don't know. Yeah. Twice, he says, I don't know if there is a Strengthening Church Members Committee. And then he says, yeah, yeah, there is. I do know. But he's so polite and British. He's not going to drill the point home that you just lied to my face. And now I caught you in it. Or oh, I'm just saying that if that he recapitulates it saying, first, you weren't sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, like you said, yeah. but but yeah, he, he could says, have said, know. you just lie straight up lied to me. And now you've corrected yourself. But mm -hmm. um, and, and it's fun because I think we're going to see now that Purdy is no different from the apostle himself because they, they they all act in this mode, protect the church, protect the reputation of the church. And frankly, I don't even know why he's lying about this, because you can go back and look at, you know, this is happening in 2012. When you read the newspaper articles about the September 6th, they're talking about the strengthening the church committee. And so it's not like it's a secret. It's not like the world doesn't know that this thing already exists. It's embarrassing because it sounds an awful lot like that cult Scientology that has this whole reprisal thing going on. And so it, it, it doesn't paint the church in a good light that it has to have this type of, you know, committee populated by former CIA slash FBI members. But there it is. Can I tell you what's okay. more embarrassing? What looks worse <laughs> is lying about it. Yeah. And getting caught. Yeah. Then it looks worse. I don't care how bad the Strengthening Church Members Committee is. 
you know, I, I've talked with members of the Strengthening Church Committee, uh, Members Committee, but no matter what they're doing, it's not going to be as bad as it's going to look like if you have to lie about their very existence. All right. So then they say, okay, well, we got to get someone who can talk about this uh, to the reporter. Should we get one of the apostles who's actually on the committee? No, let's get Jeffrey Aller Holland. He's not on the committee, so he can have plausible deniability and we'll let him know they're going to ask you about this. This guy is not, you know, he's not a babe who just fell off the turnip truck or whatever. He he knows his stuff. Mm -hmm. And so now he confronts Holland. So let's take a look at that. church members committee the spokesman for the mormon church couldn't give me a satisfactory answer maybe the apostle could what is the strengthening church members committee the strengthening the church members committee was born some years ago to protect predatory practices of polygamists I asked what, what, what is it? Well, that, that's what it is. It is to protect So it does against, still exist? It's, it does still exist. It does still exist. And it looks at, uh, it, it's there to defend the church against polygamists? Principally. Prin that is still the principal task. And uh, what is its subsidiary task? Uh, I suppose just to be protective generally, just to watch and care for uh, any, uh, any insidious influence. But for all intents and purposes, all that I know about it is primarily to guard against polygamy. That would be the substantial, essential part of their work. I'm okay, no, can you stop there for a second? Because he is lying all over the place here. I know. So and first problem, of all, well, I, if you take that exchange from the beginning, what is the strengthening of the church member committee? Does he answer that question? No. no. He answers the, where did it come from question? Right. And even that's only partially true. And he wants yeah. to say this is the main purpose. Well, main if, if it's the main purpose, follow up question. This yeah. is they, they should never, ever subject themselves to follow up questions because this is why there's cross-examination and confrontation of witnesses. Right. Because yes. then you get to ask follow up questions and find out maybe the rest of the story and hopefully see if that maybe there is more to it. That, uh, than what the um, the witness wants you to know. And so immediately, oh, that's the principal reason. Okay, so the principal reason, by the way, you notice how, no how nervous he is. Yeah. He is so nervous that when he frames the first answer about all the Ps, he actually misspeaks such that it makes it sound like the purpose of the committee is to protect the polygamist. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is to protect the pol the polygamous practices no it's, it's to protect the predatory practices of polygamists of the poly <laughs> and so the bbc guy says he realizes he just misspoke yeah. and he says so the, so that's its principle so okay so its principal thing is to protect the church against that's the bbc guy telling the apostle yeah. what it's really about and yeah. so uh what are its subsidiary reasons and it's just that's like, the thing i love that part because he immediately <laughs> he immediately sees through the lie and he's like okay you've carved out part of what it is which means you're intentionally trying to withhold back something so now i'm going to point right to the gaping hole in your answer and ask what's that and can i say this so far elder holland hasn't lied yeah well there you go okay he hasn't lied he didn't say he doesn't know when he asked him uh tell me about the strengthening church members committee he doesn't say oh well um i've never heard of that in my life yeah. He says instead, uh, okay, well, this is what it's for. So good for him on that. But then when he says principal practice, yeah, right. And so uh, principal practice, and I'm sure that's part of it. He says subsidiary yeah. things. And then he starts saying, well, I suppose he knows exactly what it does for crying out loud. 
Yeah. You don't have to be on the committee. And he's probably been on the, uh, there's two apostles who are over the committee. There's two apostles over everything in the church. There's two mm -hmm. apostles over this committee. He's doubtless been at, at one point. And it's not like, oh, these two apostles go over here in their secret room and they never tell anybody else about what it is they're doing and the, the committee's doing. They have their meetings every every week yeah. for crying out loud. And they talk about the things that the apostles are over, right? That's the yeah. point of the meeting to share the information. So he knows exactly what it is that they do. But now he says, I suppose, what is it? He, he says, I'll, I suppose just, oh, just to protect the church generally. Yeah, generally. Yeah. Yeah. Because he knows that if he gets into the details of what it is they really do, that's going to look bad for his client, yeah. the church. He's facing outward. He's protecting the church. And therefore, he is parsing his information in such a way as to protect the church as best he can. Now, he doesn't have a positive duty to disclose the whole truth, so he can say whatever he wants, and it's it's not a lie. And so uh, far, he but, has not lied. But all yeah. he's done is try and uh, dodge the question, and he has not been successful with this particular yeah. reporter. <laughs> We've withheld certain truths from you to manipulate you. Yeah, exactly. Right, so. <laughs> that's what he's trying to do. But this reporter's not get, letting him get away with it, and that's what's so wonderful about it. Yeah. So let's keep going, because this now delves into another area where... The church has a motive to misrepresent things, and we get to see if he's going to just tell the truth and let the consequence follow, or if he's going to try this weaselly, mealy mouth uh, prevarication against. And here's where he, here, and this one is where he goes over the line and lies, and then tries to come back from it. All right, let's take a look. It's about the penalties. Oh, I'm not, I'm not on that committee, so I can't speak to it. Who may well become that's total BS. That's just a total dodge. I'm not on that committee, so I can't speak to it. Yes, you can. You know what they do. You're actually right now. That That's the. Okay, I almost went into Bill Real territory. I almost pulled a Bill <laughs> Real on Elder Holland. Okay, that is the face of someone who is not being honest. There you go. All it's right, also well, a face of a guy who's very nervous. Watch him in this interview. He looks like he's on the hot seat being grilled for murder one. Yeah, I, I think this is the last time a church apostle has ever been in a one-on-one -on -one interview setting that allowed follow-up questions. Yes, and they're wishing that the time before this had been the last time. Yeah. Let's talk about Mitt Romney. Okay. The man who may well become the most powerful man on earth. Mm -hmm. As a Mormon in the temple, I've been told, he would have sworn an oath to say that he would not pass on what happens in the temple, lest he slit his throat. Is that true? That's not true. That's not true. Lie. Yep. We do not have penalties in the temple. You used to. We used to. Therefore, he swore an oath saying, I will not tell anyone about the secrets here, lest I slit my throat. Well, the, the, the vow that was made was regarding the ordinance the ordinance of the temple. It sounds Masonic, sir. It sounds Masonic. Well, it's comparable. It's similar to, to, to a, a Masonic uh, relationship. The most potentially the most powerful man on the world the has sworn an oath, which he meant at the time, whatever it is now, that he must not tell anyone about what he's seen, lest he slit uh, his throat. That he would not tell anyone about his personal pledge to the Lord. I'm assuming that any religious candidate, an evangelical, a Roman Catholic, Rick Santorum, Newt Gingrich, uh, Osama, uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, President Obama, Oops. Uh, I'm assuming that anybody who has a relationship to God 
has made a pledge of some kind to God, there's, there, there'd be some kind of loyalty to God, or what kind of a God is that? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, so, you know, you're right. He, he When he says, you know, Mitt Romney would have sworn this oath with penalties, and he right out says no, which is, is a factual misrepresentation, outright lie. And then he realizes that, and then he recharacterizes it into the present tense. This is what the definition of is is. No, yeah. there are no. No, there are no penalties because he wants him to, he want. please let go of me. Let go of my leg. You rotten dog. You're chewing my ankle to the bone right now. You reporter, yeah. just let go of my leg. And uh, he won't, he won't, but he wants to put him off and say, no, there are no penalties. And he goes, well, but there were, there were, he goes, yes, there yeah. were. He does, he does that classic, um, I forget the name of the the CES uh, BYU professor who says that he's like, when someone asks you a question about the gospel, don't answer the question they ask, answer the question they should have asked. And so Robert he Millett. answers, Mill, yeah, Bob Millett, that's right. So uh, what he says is he answers the question of, are there penalties in the temple right now today? When the question was actually, did Mitt Romney, when he went through for his endowment, do the penalty thing and yeah. so that's that's the deal and it's so embarrassing because now the reporter just says okay so uh there aren't now but there were yes there were so Mitt Romney did take a penalty I take yeah. uh, an oath uh of secrecy and Elder Holland never actually says yes but he says everything but yes it's a long yes because now he yeah. starts trying to recharacterize this as an oath to God and now he starts talking about other religions. It's just an unusual. Yeah. But I. But then he gets himself into trouble because why is it that taking an oath to God should be something that you is, is guarded by secrecy yeah. and penalties? It's really not an oath to God. That I mean, it's about the actual signs, tokens, penalties, well, uh, and that's, names. Yeah, and that's when he's like, "It's the ordinance. It's the ordinance." Well, everything in the temple is the ordinance. It's it's everything about it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're just, you're using terms that we Mormons have our own proprietary definition for, you know, covenant ordinance that means something different and not as um, secret, frankly, and protected as, as they do to Mormons. And you're using it to try to smooth things over and make it not seem as foreign, as unusual. And because when he says, you know, they have some commitment to God. No, no, no. In the church, when you're taking those covenants, you're not committing yourself to God. You're committing yourself to the organization of the church. You're swearing fealty to the leaders so that they can call upon you and remind you of those covenants. So when you talk to politicians in Utah and they talk about the brethren who come and visit them, telling them that the church wants things voted on in a particular way, they're going to remind them of their covenants. And it's that leverage that they use when they need to um, on the people in positions that they want to have influence. And this was best reflected when Senator Gordon Brown or Gordon Smith from Oregon met with the brethren in private that was leaked to Mormon leaks, where he talks at the very beginning, he's like, you know, I've, I've stood before presidents and leaders of all countries, but I stand before you now and I know who you are and I remember my covenants. And then in that conversation, he even like discloses state secrets about the uh, nuclear capabilities of Iran. And he's like, I think that's a state secret, but I don't know. And so it's it's just a ridiculous setup that, you know, is all hidden under the surface of this interaction where Rom, where where Holland is trying to minimize and downplay the nature of the temple ceremony and try to say it's the same as anyone who has a commitment to God.
It's a right. misrepresentation. Right. And at the end, that's so funny because he's been beaten up so badly, even in the short video clip. And he knows that this guy is going to ask him. He knows he, he knows that this guy knows his stuff yeah. because what he's doing is he's testing to see what this guy knows. It's the same kind of dance, right? How much do you know? How much can you catch me on? And can I get away with uh, misrepresenting something in this way and not get called on it? Well, he calls him on it. And so he's so beat up. You see how nervous he is. He's actually like chewing his lower lip for lunch in that. And his hands are yeah. uh, really shaky. Uh, everything. Uh, you don't have to be a body language expert to see that this is a man who is nervous. He's sweating bullets. And so then he realizes what he's up against to the point where he actually cracks completely. And this guy follows up, says, it sounds Masonic, sir. And, and he agrees. Elder yeah. Holland agrees. I mean, if he's still if he's still not broken, if he's still the Elder Holland at the beginning of the interview about the Strengthening Church Members Committee, he says, well, um, I don't know. I've never been a Mason. Yeah. But he does. And he said, oh, well, it's similar. Yeah, it's similar to what they have in Masonry. And all the members well, of the church watching this are going, what? Yeah. Well, at least he's honest about that. But like you say, he's caught off guard. He was cracked like a nut. <laughs> I bet you it feels really good when you're in that position of cracking the nut as an attorney, when you grill a witness and you get them to fold. It's very rare. Very really? rare. Usually they will go down with the ship sticking to their story. And this guy, I mean, Elder, but this is the problem. That's the problem that Elder Holland has is this moral sense of you can't lie. You can prevaricate, but you can't out and out lie. Most witnesses on the stand, they'll lie no matter what. You know, They'll stick yeah. to their story no matter how ridiculous and no matter how obvious it is to lie because they don't have any compunction about lying. I'm not talking about all witnesses, obviously. But yeah, witnesses do lie on the stand, believe it or not, even after taking the, the oath to tell the truth. So, but Elder Holland, his weakness, his kryptonite, is that he cannot come out and out and tell a bald-faced lie. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, so we talked a little bit about the clients. Uh, I think I just offended Elder Holland against Bill Real. <laughs> well, I don't think Bill's going to repent of his own perspective. I want to talk a little bit about what is actually going on here, because I think on the surface, it may seem that what we're talking about is catching the church in a lie or trusting the church not to lie or anything. But I think what's going on here is something very different from that. And it, you get clued into it when you talk to members of the church about these things. And I've had conversations with family members, with other people about, hey, the, you know, this was a lie. And, and they've been lying about this from the beginning. And a lot of the times the response that I get is, well, we just don't know all the information ourselves. And so ultimately more information will come out that will explain everything. So I've sustained the brethren and I trust them to do what's good. And it's part of the sacrifice that I give in my life. It's part of how I see myself as humble and submissive before God is I completely suspend disbelief in my devotion to the church and its leaders. And you can frame it in a way with religious terms that sounds almost like a sanctification of your life, like something holy and noble. And, but if you look like at another church and you listen to their brethren, like if you listen to Jehovah's Witnesses, just say like, yeah, we completely surrender our judgment in our critical mind to the governing body members as an act of devotion to Jehovah. And we are blessed for it. You're just like, that sounds a little bit culty. But what it's doing is 
you know, we all make decisions in our life based on our understanding of the truth, of objective reality, of things that happen. And so the ability of an organization to control the narrative of truth, to control what data points construct the reality in which you operate is such an overwhelming power of control. And it's something that humans have struggled with over time. There's great literature, great movies that wrestle with this issue. Anything from The Matrix, if you were to watch it recently, to uh, 1984 is one of my favorite uh, examples of this. And there's a particular scene that really drives this point home in a way that's so powerful that you see it referenced today even in culture. And that is in it's not in Room 101, which is a different subject. It's in the interactions between O'Brien and Winston in what is essentially a torture chamber in the Ministry of Love. And what O'Brien is trying to do is he's trying to tell Winston what his relationship to Brig Brother is. And he does it by holding up four fingers and asking Winston what he sees. And it's very telling when you look at that interaction and the different answers because Winston tries to give him what he wants. And I think it's worth reviewing and then talking a little bit about. So let's uh, take a look at this if I add it. So uh, Winston, this is now O'Brien. Now when I watch this, this is like an apologist for the church um, trying to get member, you know, trying to get doubters to accept the rationalizations. And then Winston is like the critic of the church, someone who's been awoken to the ideas that there's some issues in church history. So he's talking to him now about some of the things that he's seen in the past. If I can get it to work. A serious delusion. Photographs about which you've had hallucinations, which you believed you held in your hand. They never existed. So what we're seeing there is, is Winston worked in the Ministry of Truth, and his job was to take people that existed and to blank them, put them down the memory hole. And so he, it's, it's kind of like a church history researcher. He's looking at things that happen, and then he's seeing the big brother completely erase them from history and pretend like they didn't exist. And he knows it. And so when, so O'Brien here is telling him, you've, you think you've seen these figures, but they never existed. And so he's, point, he's, he's trying to tell Winston that his perceptions are wrong. And... Say what you're about to say, Winston. They exist. In memory. I remember. Only the disciplined mind can see reality, Winston. So he burns the pictures, puts them down the memory hole, and then he tells Winston, tell me what you're about to say. And Winston says, they do exist. They did exist. They exist in memory. I remember. You remember. And O'Brien now gives him an example of how you are supposed to interact with the truth. When Big Brother tells you something is not true, did not exist, is not part of reality, you accept it. And so he says, I don't remember them. And then he says the disciplined, it takes a disciplined mind to be able to interact with reality. And this reminds me so much of uh, Oak's part at the end where he says, you really have to have a sophisticated handle on the truth to, to understand and conceptualize these things in just the right way. And I'm sorry, this is my diatribe moment, uh, RFM, so you just take a break here for a little bit. <clears throat> okay, so then we're gonna continue. Self-destruction. 
you remember writing in your diary, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four? Yes. How many fingers am I holding up, Missy? Four. And if the party says there are not four, but five, then how many? Okay, so this is a key moment. He holds up four fingers and he says, how many am I holding up? And Winston tells him the evidence of his eyes, which is that there are four fingers. And then Winston says, well, if the party says that there are five, then how many are there? And Winston does what you think he's supposed to do, which is he's supposed to obey the party. And so he says, well, then there's five. And he's like, no, that's wrong. And he's shocking him. Now, I know the audio is hard to hear. Some people are commenting on that. That's kind of why I'm recapping what's happening here. It's, it's not too much longer because we get to the point really quickly here. No. That's no use. You're lying. How many fingers, please? What else can I say? Okay, so he holds up four fingers again and says, how many fingers? And Winston's like, four, what else can I say? Four, five, anything you like. He's always rooting things either in his own senses and objective reality or what Big Brother wants him to do, but neither of those answers are correct. We then have a segue where O'Brien is cradling him like a child and talking to him. Sometimes, Winston. Sometimes they're five. Sometimes they're three. Sometimes they're all of them at once. <laughs> He started this interview by saying, do you remember what you said? Two, the freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four and all else follows. And what he's got to do is he's got to break Winston away from that attachment to objective reality. And so he's cradling him now and, and, and Winston is saying, you know, how can I reject the evidence of my own eyes if two plus two, they equal four? And he says, well, sometimes they do, but sometimes they equal five. Sometimes they equal three. Sometimes they equal all at once. And what he's doing is he's breaking down Winston's trust in his own senses, his own internal autonomy to say things are what they are, because that is the thing that would allow someone to throw off the boot that they are under. So let's continue. Neither the past, nor the present, nor the future exists in its own right, Winston. Reality is in the human mind, not in the individual mind, which makes mistakes and soon perishes, but in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. He's making the point, reality is what is determined by the party. Each individual mind is frail and can make mistakes. You can't trust in the arm of the flesh because you're human, you're, you're weak. But the party, the church, 
God is what determines truth. So you've got to surrender that part of yourself that trusts in your own inner voice, in your own sentence, let go of those things and surrender that to Big Brother, to the church. He held up for and said, you know, do you want to really see them or just wish to persuade me to see them? He's like, I really want to see them, but it's not the right answer. That is the crux of the entire thing. Anytime he tried to actually root his answer in his own senses, in objective reality, in what he believed Big Brother wanted him to do, all of those answers were wrong. The answer that was right was for him to say, I don't know. I have no hold on reality. I have no ability to discern anything because he completely surrenders his hold, his ability, any tool set that he has to tell one way or the other. As soon as he lets go of that, then he is able to fit the paradigm that O'Brien is imposing on him. So when you read fair Mormon articles and you read the defenses of the church and everything, they're going to give you any examples, any justification, any rationalization at all, because the whole point is to inhabit the reality that big brother that the church wants you to inhabit. And your role as the member is to be like, I just surrender, I trust the brethren, I surrender all of my agency, all of my critical mind, and I trust and suspend disbelief, and I don't even try to, I can't even have a handle on the truth because my, my capabilities are so knowledge, and that is the mode that you have to be in to inhabit that. And so when we talk about the leaders lying to the members, what they are doing is they are manipulating and constructing the reality that they want you to accept because that then frames how you interact with the church. And the correct way is to be one. When they say, if you're not one, you're not mine, that is, you have to be at one in mind with the brethren. And when the reality of the brethren changes, your reality changes as well, and you can't even remember it. When I when this whole issue of the gays and the church came up, I asked some people who were in the church, what does it mean to be gay? Is it a choice or is it something born in? They were like, it's a choice born of iniquity. Then a few years later passed and the church released the uh, Gays and Mormons website. I asked the same people, the same question, some people are born with it, but there's like no recollection of it. Um, anyway, so that that's the example of when we're talking about deception and the truth, what it means. It's both what the church is doing and how we as members are supposed to behave. And that's kind of my, my end to this. I don't know if you want to take calls now or if you have anything you want to add to that RFM. Thank you for your uh, <laughs> passive silence for a few minutes. It's not easy. <laughs> It's not easy. That's great. Richard Burton. 
uh, he is so powerful in that role and i i you know the movie isn't too popular but uh i really enjoy the visuals they give to uh orwell's brilliant text i read the book i haven't seen the movie but it's like peewee says at the end of the show at the peewee's big adventure the movie mm-hmm. when they're showing the, the the movie up on the movie screen at the drive-in yes. do you remember and Dottie says aren't you going to stay and see the movie and he goes i don't have to watch the movie Dottie." <laughs> I lived it. Lived it. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have both lived it. I mean, yeah. we've lived 1984. Yeah. This is, I mean, I, I think the O'Brien figure is really why I have such a visceral reaction to the apologetics. I, I mean, it, it really, it's like a knife in my soul when I hear it because it reminds me so much of this type of interaction where they, you know, you start to get insulted and demeaned as a critic or a doubter. It's like, why don't you just accept these things? You're so stupid. You can't accept that, you know, all these anachronisms are eventually going to be proven true. And you're just being, you know, too critical for this. It's just, it's crazy stuff. Can I tell you a real quick story? Because it illustrates this yeah. beautifully, which is this wonderful idea. Not just it's what we tell you, but that two and three or four or five. And sometimes they're all true at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So I'm in high priest group, right? And the teacher's given a lesson. And uh, as part of his lesson, he's talking about how the doctrine of the church never changes. You know, Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever from uh, yeah. Hebrews. <laughs> and doctrine never changes. Doctrine never changes. And quoting different church leaders, blah, blah, blah. And everybody, and these, you know, it's high prescript. These are guys who are older. They've been in the church a long time. A lot of them have been in leadership positions. And uh, they know their stuff, in other words basically. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's sitting there, they're all nodding their head. They're all nodding their head. They're all, yep. Doctrine never changes, never changes. Churches, you know, when you turn around, blah, blah, blah. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm sort of looking around, you know, and what if anybody's going to say anything about this? And nobody is. Nobody's going to challenge this. Everybody's going to accept it. And then right when the teacher was done with this part of the lesson, was ready to start and go into the next part, I raise my hand. I say, uh, excuse me, can we go back to that part about doctrine never changing? Yeah. I said, am I the only person in this room who's heard of plural marriage? <laughs> and the response was so funny because all of a sudden, all these old heads start smiling and even chuckling and nodding. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> but they're believing both things at the same time. Just compartmentalized in different parts of their brain. And all it takes is some kid, that's me, to come out and say, well, <laughs> what, about, what about this obvious example that everybody here knows about, which totally uh, contradicts what we were all agreeing to here a moment ago. And everyone goes, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we open up uh, the phone lines for calls, uh, there's a brilliant performance speaking about from an institutional perspective and from a society's perspective, the importance of living life according to the truth. And um, it's in the miniseries Chernobyl that you can find on Netflix. And in the testimony at the end, the scientist that we've been following throughout the whole way is giving testimony now in, I believe is like a secret tribunal with the KGB, after he's already given worldwide testimony in Vienna, uh, in which he misrepresented the facts to um, basically let Rush off the hook. And he talks, he's changed his position now in terms of his commitment to the truth. And he talks about what the consequences of living by lies is. And I think it has a lesson that the church is in the process of learning 
painfully, I don't know when they're going to learn it, but it may be that the declining membership and the declining, uh, you know, millennial involvement in the church and millennial engagement is, is some of this. But let's take a quick look at it because I just love this performance so much. And uh, we'll take this here. Here we go. No one in the room that night knew the shutdown button could act as a detonator. They didn't know it because it was kept from them. Comrade Legasov, you're contradicting your own testimony in Vienna. Testimony in Vienna was a lie. I lied to the world. Not the only one who kept the secrets. There are many following orders. The KGB from the Central Committee. And right now there are 16 reactors in the Soviet Union with the same fatal flaw. Three of them are still running, less than 20 kilometers away at Chernobyl. Professor Legasov, if you mean to suggest the Soviet state is somehow responsible for what happened, then I must warn you, you are treading on dangerous ground. I've already trod on dangerous ground. We're on dangerous ground right now because of our secrets and our lies. They're practically what define us. When the truth offends, we we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it is even there, but it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. That is how an RBMK reactor core explodes. Nice. All right. Oh, I get goosebumps. <clears throat> so what is, you know, how what is the RKBM reactor of Mormonism that their lies covering up for so many years now are coming to the front? I think, you know, it's so attached to manipulating the truth that we get statements like a few months shy of her 15th birthday when they're trying to come out with the truth um you know the the debt that is incurred to the truth that is eventually going to come into account happens in each of our lives in each of our minds in each of our hearts as we learn how the church has lied and misrepresented things in the past as we see how it abuses its authority based on illegitimate claimed authority um, all of these different things come to a head in your journey out of the church. It's why we're here talking about these things now. Um, that's that's kind of my final word on it, and I'll get the call set up if you want to mention anything else. Great. I'll just say that, yeah, these essays have come very, very late in the game and only at the point that they cannot deny them anymore. And therefore, we're left with a situation that when I joined the church in 1978, the anti-Mormon lies... The negative information about the church that the church called anti-Mormon lies at the time have now become adopted and endorsed and published by the church in the essays. Yeah. But there's something even more than that that occurs to me. All right. You got like 13 essays. These are the things that they're talking about. And they're once again trying to admit to as much as they have to while still withholding things on those subjects. There are actually issues in the church that are so radioactive that they don't even dare write an essay about it. Examples? Well, the Adam-God theory, for one thing. 
Yeah. They cannot touch the Adam God theory because that will go nuclear. Pardon the pun. Total critical <laughs> mass. They cannot yeah. go there. Therefore, they would rather simply leave it unaddressed than try and acknowledge it and put whatever spin they can on it. Because it tells me they don't have a spin that's good enough. Yeah. Second anointing. Well, yeah, that's secret because it's sacred. Yeah. Um, blood atonement. Did they talk about that at all in the violence in the in Utah? Yeah, in the West? I guess they did. Yeah, they did invoke it a little bit. They just put it under the heading of fiery sermons. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, they didn't actually talk about the theological underpinnings. No, there are some sins no. that a man can commit that are so great that the blood of Christ does not yeah. cover it. And therefore, they have yeah. to atone for it with their own blood. Yeah, and they didn't link to the talks where the prophet himself said this over the pulpit right. uh, in, in vivid imagery that was unambiguous. Footnote. Uh, all right, John, so. See John D. Lee. Yes. So if you'd like to give a call, give us a little bit of your perspective and your takeaway from this discussion about Dallin H. Oaks' philosophy on honesty and lying and all that involves, call 210-422-2222. And uh, I think we have it set up where we can have a dialogue where both RFM and I can hear you and we can uh, interact a little bit. In the meantime, let's see if we have any comments that are worth uh, talking about. Um, let's see here. Josh Kim says the senior brethren have served on financial arms of the church as such as boards. They get money from that. They also get stipends, not salary. It's the same bleeping thing. Uh, you know, the, I think that used to be much more commonplace. It used to be when you became an apostle, there was automatic seats on certain boards. And then when that became more public and it was a little bit embarrassing, that ended. Um, but that was one way that the church could go forth and say, well, we don't really pay them, but a modest amount. And that's technically true. The church doesn't pay them from church funds for that. But because they sit on the boards of church-owned corporate organizations, then they can get, you know, 100000 from this board, 100000 from that board, and this bank, and that bank. And then it all adds up to a very comfortable living. Yes. Um, and now that that has gone away, where those automatic boards are gone... Uh, I don't know if that type of compensation has been replaced by other forms of compensation, uh, but that's part of where secrecy hides these things. Okay, we have a call. Right. All we know is that if we don't know, it's not because it doesn't exist. Right. All right, you're on talk on things and stuff. Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you both, actually. All right. Uh, what, what's on your mind? Well, one thing that has come up to me um, since I've been thinking about my personal, you know, relationship with the church, um, basically during COVID, is thinking about how much this pattern of thought has affected um, our nation as a whole. Because when we look at the riots on Capitol Hill and how many Mormons participated in that, I just couldn't help but think that so much of it has to do with the way that they have been I mean, I hate to say program, but I can't think of a better word. You know, their their way of thinking is such that they can be easily manipulated to believe untruth if they feel right or if they're coming out of a certain mouth. And mm. that's such a dangerous way of thinking. And we can see how it's not just affecting the church, but it's affecting entire nations. Mm, okay, yeah. So there's this idea that um, there seems to be a crossover between people in the church and people who are willing to believe conspiracy theory type things like QAnon 
and are you know is one's susceptibility to one uh somehow linked to their susceptibility to the other or do they feed on each other um i don't know what do you think rfm well i will say that you know mormons are typically um primed to be hyper patriotic mm. okay at least within the united states i don't know about in other places but um uh, that's been my experience but i will say that on a more general basis the masses are famously uh, easily swayed one way or another by um a charismatic speaker. Uh, Julius Caesar, the play Julius Caesar, has a famous scene in it where this is totally on display, and it's the speech by Mark Antony, which begins, friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears become very Caesar not to praise him, etc. But what happens right before that is that one of the conspirators, Brutus, addresses the crowd. And this is at Caesar's funeral. His body's down there on the steps. Anyway, so he addresses the crowd, and he does a great job of explaining why it was that Julius Caesar was getting too big for his britches and the senators were totally justified and it was the right thing to knife him. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the crowd, absolutely, 100%, we're with you, Brutus. And now Brutus has to go take care of some business, run some errands or something. And he lets Mark Antony speak. You know, Mark Antony was the right hand man of, uh, uh, excuse me, Julius Caesar. He was not at all in league with the conspirators, but he gets a promise from Mark Antony that he won't say anything bad about the conspirators. And Mark Antony, you know, he's gonna be truthful, he'll be honest, and so they can leave and let him talk at uh, Caesar's funeral as his friend. So he gives this huge, long, wonderful speech in which at one and the same time as he's saying nothing bad about the conspirators and repeatedly calling Brutus an honorable man, he is at one and the same time showing the audience how awful it was that Julius Caesar was assassinated and how they ought to hang the sons of bitches up from the nearest lamppost. And he does it all, but the audience follows him 100%. So it's just this idea that audiences, masses, are just famously known for not being terribly intelligent and being able to be swayed by a charismatic speaker. Yeah. I think I would add to that that um, in the journey out of Mormonism, it's very easy to look at the manipulation of the church, the deception of the church, and to see manipulation and deception in that mode is a very religious thing. And then you go out into the wider world and you may not have primed your, your snooper of deception and manipulation to see it coming from secular ideas, from non-religious things. And it's important for all of us in, in, as we interact with the world to just keep those, that sensitivity to red flags happening. And, you know, certainly if people in the church had been through the experience of detecting red flag, detecting deception, manipulation, holding strong uh, standards for evidence on things that you will believe and act on, then they could avoid a lot of perhaps the QAnon conspiratorial thing that, you know, led in whatever uh, we saw on January 6th. But that doesn't mean that even people in different sides of the political spectrum may not also be acting in mob mentality ways based on emotional appeals that aren't backed up by the evidence. And I will refer on this subject, there's a, a talk, talk on things and stuff episode from a month or so ago um, called The Third Wave and um, The Pride of Lakewood. And we talk about mob mentality and just kind of how that is completely removed from reality and how people can get swept away in it. And so certainly take uh, advantage of that. So some good thoughts. Thank you so much, caller, for bringing that to our attention. Sure. Thank you. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye.
Okay, so if you would like to join the conversation, the number is 210-422-2222. Let's see. Nay006 says, I think everyone is easily manipulated by their bias. It's easy to see in others and harder to see in yourself. And that's such a good point. Um, You know, it's so easy to point out someone else's... (laughs) failed or flawed religion but it's harder to find it on your own okay so let's see here if where did my hold on i'm gonna find my there we go hello you are on talk on things and stuff hi yes thanks yeah i just had two quick points um sure i've had a lot of experience with lawyers and in my uh, experience, they seem to be very concerned about procedure, rules, the rule of law. It's that um, aspect of American society that I think has been very attractive to most of the world. And they really, really do seem to be ethical. They don't want to cross the line into line. Most of the good lawyers I know really don't want to lie. They, they don't want to misrepresent themselves. They want to make sure that the law is followed and they – they realize that the law is a little bit squishy and that there's room for equitable judgment from a judge on other circumstances, and they'll argue those points for their clients. But but they don't lie the way that Oaks, you know, in these last couple podcasts as I've listened, do. They just don't feel comfortable with that. And that's I, I, mm-hmm. I know RFM made that joke about 95% of lawyers, and that's a great joke, you know, gives the other lawyers a bad name. But I I, you know, my experience has been almost the opposite. It's it's the 5% of lawyers that really are the ones that are unethical and pursue those things. So that's my first comment. And then the second comment I want to make is I, I was scrolling Reddit the other day, and, and someone made a funny post related to a lot of the happenings of 2020. And they pointed out that Australia got all the criminals from Europe and America got all the religious wackos. And <laughs> And in America, you know, you can believe whatever you want. As long as you're not breaking the law, you're not harming other people, the government doesn't care, we're going to step away from you. And it seems like that's the church is like following that line. It's like they will do whatever and get as much as they can up to and maybe even crossing a little bit past the point where they're breaking the law. And it's only when society and everyone else pressures them that they'll do the right thing. So yeah, thanks for your podcast. All right. Well, I appreciate the comments. Anything you uh, would add to that RFM? Yeah. I mean, as as a lawyer and just my personality is such that I am always trying to explain when I'm talking with people, right? Mm -hmm. Explain exactly what it is that I know, what I don't know, what my basis for thinking this is, that I'm not positive about it, but I think so because of A, B, and C. But here's the other side of the argument, which I don't think is as persuasive. And Mm -hmm. I am an absolute pain in the ass to talk with to a normal person because I catch myself doing this to a normal person, i.e. non-lawyer. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm stuck. All they want to do is hear the answer to the question. Okay. (laughs) They just want me to say it in one sentence. They don't want me to go on for 10, 15 minutes telling them all the reasons why I think this. It it becomes an impediment to communication actually in some ways. Well, this explains why our phone calls are so long. Anyway, um, it does. <laughs> I'm joking. 
You do great. Uh, <clears throat> it explains why you repeat things so damn much on your podcasts. I try uh, not to repeat them too much, but there is a thing. I just, I bloviate, so it's okay. Oh, so I think you got a little bit on me there. <laughs> your bloviation. All right. Yes, I do. I do. All right, uh, 210-422-2222. If you would like to join the conversation, give some of your perspective on the the way that the church has kind of deconstructed the idea of honesty and reformulated it into something that always gives itself a pass. Well, let me ask you this, okay? While we're waiting Hold for the call. You got a call? We, do, we do have a okay, call. I'll ask, I'll ask them this. All right. All right. Uh, you're on Talk on Things and Stuff. What's on your mind? Hey there, John Streeter, RFM. Like hey, the dynamic duo or one of the dynamic duos together again. Uh, Gimpy Giza here. Hey, listen, I, I, I had to call in after I heard what RFM just said about, you know, repeating yourself and trying to make it clear in this context. I'm the same way and it drives my family, especially my wife insane. But I just want to be clear. I think if you are trying to, uh, you, you know, give information to somebody and you give them all the context, or they, yeah, they want the short answer, of course. But it's actually kind of like, a, you know, an honor to them. You want to be understood and seek to understand. And I'm just glad to hear somebody as, as awesome as RFM as, that I do the same damn thing. <laughs> anyway, hey, I do, I do have actually a point to the uh, conversation. Are you guys still there? Yep. Yes, sir. Uh, all right. I think RFM may remember this. Maybe you, Jonathan. Uh, do you remember the uh, I'll Build You a Rainbow thing that was actually in film strips? Uh, sure. Long, long ago. Should we sing it together? I, I'll Build You a Rainbow. I'll way Build up, You a Rainbow. rainbow so way going, up in the... Was yeah. it blue or sky? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's about a, a guy who loses his wife to some illness, and he's got an adorable little child, and, and they go through the whole thing, and, and they, they've got the song, and they keep coming back to the song. It's, it's total emotional manipulation and i think i actually showed that very early in my mission once i thought we still have this one i remember this but uh but it's all build your rainbow and all that and so it's very emotional heartfelt that's what you you lay on them to connect to that emotional heartstring and um i used to joke with a friend of mine it, both is tbms now okay i mean you know i mean I, we got it but i would say you know and, and, the, and the, the big line was the kid would come back and go Here's the, the the big punchline of the whole the whole video. The little kid runs up, Dad, Dad, it's okay, it's okay. We can be with Mom again in heaven or whatever. That was the gist. That was that was the the final nail on the heart, right? And so I, I I would say, Dad, Dad, we don't have to worry anymore because we can you can go see those hookers now or whatever. But you know, but um, the, uh, I'm not sure what he said, but I should maybe I shouldn't be laughing. What did you say? You can go do what with those who? Oh, oh, he says, um, he says, Dad, Dad, it's okay, because now you can go see those hookers again. Oh, my God. He said you can go see those hookers again. <laughs> yeah, true, true story from a TBM. Hey, listen, I, I, do, I, I saw the first part of this, and I'm so impressed with you guys. And I really like, I think the power of, de of demonstration is, is important. And when you put those 10 things that you broke down from what Oak says, and, and the other, you know, the other one, it's just so revealing. And, uh, and I've been involved with marketing in the past, so I know about uh, the kind of the headlines and emotional manipulation toward marketing a little. These guys are doing it in spades. Yeah, they're, they're weaseling out, lawyering out here, but I, I've noticed a lot of the same patterns in marketing and emotional manipulation, and then I brought in my own horizons, learning about how you know, cults work and how that type yeah. of, you know, how that works in religion. And so now you just see it. It's just, 
almost insulting to watch conference because they'll give you some scriptures. I think there's two parts to most people's talks in conference. It's the st- the good stuff, the the scriptures and stuff that they'll put memes up about, and then they'll hit you later in it with the with the with the other stuff they want, the negative stuff. So there yeah. there are many many patterns in in what they do, and I just think it's fascinating. And I, I'll, I'll even hang up if you want. I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about that emotional. That, that emotional manipulation and spiritual manipulation. You know what I'm saying? All right, Gimpy. I appreciate the call. We'll see what the comments are. All right. Love you guys. Keep it Take up. Take care. Well, RFM, what do you think? Is there a, uh, a component of this dishonesty in the emotional manipulation that takes place in conference talks and articles? I think that question is better addressed to President Eyring. <laughs> And I'm sure he'll break down and cry and he'll have a quivering voice as he talks about it. By the way, that whole build you a rainbow, just so you know, I've forgotten about that. What a great blast from the past. But the whole idea is this mom's got this terminal disease. I'm sure it's cancer or something. She's got this beautiful kid, beautiful husband, but they've been married in the temple. So everything's great. She talks about this rainbow. See the rainbow up there in the sky? Well, every time I'm going to build you a rainbow, little Jimmy. And every time you see the rainbow, it'll be me looking down at you from heaven. And, you know, we'll be together forever. And then at the end, you know, mom's gone because, and priesthood, no, no help for the priesthood. Hello? She called President Irene. Can you give me a blessing? He shows up and eh, she's gone. So she's gone. And now at the end, it's just the dad and the little kid. And he goes, daddy, daddy, look, there's a rainbow up there. There's a rainbow. Mom, that's the rainbow that mommy built. She's watching. We'll be together forever. The same priesthood has bound us forever. That would be the priesthood that couldn't save mom's life. So oh. hopefully they're not equally powerful. Hopefully one is more powerful than the other. Yeah, I think for me, the takeaway is that the church has been known to use emotionally charged stories that themselves are rooted in a lie to Mm. bind people to the church. And I have a great example of that, but we'll get to it after this call. Caller, can you hear us? Yeah. You are on Talk on Things and Stuff. What's on your mind? Yeah, I just had a real quick question. Um, Do you think, I know that you've been making a lot of videos of like, the psychology or brainwashing or whatever you want to call it that the church does i was just wondering if you personally think they actively do it like or like do you think that they actually sit in a room and try to look at a mission and think how can we manipulate people or do you think they actually believe what they say and happens to be manipulative if mm. that makes sense. I don't... Yeah, that's a good question. What do you think, RFM? How would you uh, perceive that? Well, the first thing I say is that those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. They're actually mm. believing what they're doing and then manipulating people. I think that what the uh, my my sense of the evidence is that they do believe what they're saying. They believe the church is true, and that's why they feel that it's justified to manipulate people to get them to be to join the church in the first place. And then to stay in the church and go to the temple, get the ordinances mm-hmm. that you're not supposed to talk about, um, and then get to the celestial kingdom. It's because they believe that, that they feel that is the primary, uh, what do you call it, the prime directive. And yeah. so anything else that they do in order to make that happen is justified. Uh, let me give you an example here about manipulation, okay? And not lying, but giving the impression of something without lying about it. Here's my question. Ready? Okay. How, when I was a member of the church, I'm still a member of the church. Uh, when I was a faithful adherent, 
uh, TBM, I believe that every single one of the 12 apostles had seen Jesus Christ in a person-to-person interview, okay? Mm-hmm. I believe that. I would be willing to bet you right now that the vast majority of the still active members of the church believe the same thing. And yet, the apostles have never said that out and out. How does that state of affairs come to be? Uh, through the power of suggestion, innuendo, um, just through culture of the church, I guess. And then, that's a good oh point. no, cultures do not exist independent. It's not something that's out here. Oh, this culture is just sort of floating out here. No, it's mm. because the leaders of the church have enforced this idea upon the members. The leaders of the church want, know they believe that. I mean, they're members too. They grew up in it. They grew up believing this. They become the leaders. They find out, wait a second, what's going on? It was like Tom Phillips. When am I going to see Jesus after I got the second anointing? Right? Yeah. They all do that. But now it is their job as the parents who have grown up and realize there's no Santa Claus. And now they got kids of their own who are all the members of the church to tell them the Santa Claus story so that the kids will believe that there's a Santa Claus. There's that old saying, which I think is very funny which is that at the Thursday meetings of the apostles have at the temple, each of the apostles sits there in the circle, wondering in their minds if they're the only ones who haven't seen Jesus. There's a beautiful (laughs) symmetry to that. I don't want to make it too philosophical or anything, but do you think that they, like that video that you showed, um, that they're actually saying five when it's actually four? Or do you think Mm. that, or how that one, um, when that one scripture where they were saying that they saw the the golden place with their spiritual eyes yeah. kind of thing, like, do you think they really believe it? But like they're forcing themselves to believe it, or do you think they actually like literally believe it? Yeah, I think early in the church, there's much more of a tendency to completely factually misrepresent things, and that's because there was, you know, they, they couldn't be called on it. Because, you know, they possessed the information, they controlled the information, and they controlled the cultural milieu to the extent that if anyone tried to call them out on it, they could demonize them and ostracize them and and basically nullify their voice in the community. And they had such a powerful hold on the community. I think we're, we are well into an era where that does not fly anymore. And so now they have to be much more circumspect, much more um, tender with the truth. And you have people like um, the the neo-apologists, um, like the Givens, who now have taken things that used to be rooted in concrete fact and reality, and they've now sublimated them to metaphor. And so now the church can continue to move forward and talk about these things, but now we're talking about metaphor and beautiful literature and bricolage and all the other things that Givens has armed the church with to move into kind of the equivalent postmodern realm of Mormonism that uh, also has the tendency to move them closer to evangelical Christianity because the wider Christian world has made those types of transitions, you know, decades before the church has had to, uh, in some cases for the same reasons in terms of some of the claims of a very literalistic view of the religion uh, being no longer uh, harmonious with objective reality. That's kind of my take on that. So I agree with RFM that they're not mutually exclusive. I think the church is reframing and providing narrative to the way it presents itself in a way that, um, it, you know, if you know how the church used to be very literalistic and now they're taking it very metaphorically and pretending like it's been that way all along, you're like, hold on a second, you're gaslighting me. 
but that's not the way that new people exposed to it. The kids being raised today, the converts introduced to the church today, they're only going to see the new way of framing things. So you just let a generation pass and you're going to see a completely different church as they do that. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks for the call. We're almost, okay. you almost have to go, don't you? Yeah, I do. Um, that will be our last call. But by way of example of where they're both combining deception and emotional manipulation, one of the videos on my channel that has the uh, the highest view count, I'm going to go ahead and close down the phone lines. I'm sorry if you didn't make it in, is um, is this video. And it's it's brilliant and beautiful. And, and let's take a listen real quick because it's great. My next story is about a woman I'll call Mary. She was the daughter of faithful pioneer parents who had sacrificed much for the gospel. She'd been married in the temple and was the mother of ten children. She was a talented woman who taught her children how to pray, to work hard, and to love each other. She paid her tithing and the family rode to the church together on Sunday in their wagon. Though she knew it was contrary to the word of wisdom, she developed the habit of drinking coffee and kept a coffee pot on the back of her stove. She claimed that the Lord will not keep me out of heaven for a little cup of coffee, but because of that little cup of coffee, she could not qualify for temple recommend. And neither could those of her children who drank coffee with her. She lived to a good old age, and she did eventually qualify to re-enter and serve in the temple. But only one of her ten children had a worthy temple marriage, and a great number of her posterity, which is now in its fifth generation, live outside of the blessings of the restored gospel she believed in. Now look at those tears. Those are real tears. This is real pain. It's it's such a heartbreaking story. Well, guess what? When the pioneers were going over the plains and there were wagons, coffee was not an exclusion to going to the temple. So the Everybody entire drink story. Coffee. Yeah, I mean the whole story about we got to go back and save those handcart people. Half of that story was they got my coffee and my whiskey, uh, and so it's like to quote Brigham Young. <laughs> Yeah, the Brigham Young's coffee and whiskey. They had to go back yeah. and rescue from Fort Bridger or wherever. Yeah, I mean, the the but there she's using an emotional appeal that means something to the people today because they've got their conception of the church today, their conception of temple worthiness, but they're transposing it into the past in a form of presentism that actually is illegitimate, in order to emotionally manipulate people. Because yes. back then, the brethren were drinking coffee. And it was not something that barred you from the temple. Just Google when the word of wisdom, look at the history of word of wisdom. 1920s. I mean, yeah, Joseph Smith drank wine the day he died. You know, he had a beer at Mossers or whatever. So again, yes, but, the, go ahead. But, but she's not lying. She's just avoiding certain truths to manipulate to you. To manipulate you, exactly. And so the bottom line is the church will use all the tools that it has in order to maintain its hold on the mind of the people over whom it claims dominion. Deception, manipulation, emotional uh, stories that combine the two, uh, it's all you know just part of the same spell that they weave in order for you to reject the evidence before your eyes, to surrender your own conscience and your own critical mind. And when you look at four fingers and they say how many they are, the answer is not four, the answer is not five, the answer is I don't know, and I will accept whatever the church tells me. So 
that's all I got. RFM, thank you for another great discussion. And hey, it's I'll been give great. you the closing word. Thank you. The word, <laughs> the word is, uh, thanks everybody. Thank you, Jonathan Streeter. And I hope everybody has a great day. Today is Good Friday. It is April 2nd, 2021, which does remind me that a year ago on Good Friday, we were having the second of two worldwide days of fasting and prayer to stay the effects of the pandemic. And the good news is that a year later, apparently it's starting to work. Yay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.